Welcome to Skynet Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear us chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we'll summarize and discuss some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekend.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I'm Jeremy Harris, one of your hosts. I work on AI safety, AI policy stuff. Uh, I have a startup called Gladstone AI and a book called Quantum Physics Made Me Do It, which you know, you can check out if you want. Um, and I'm here with Andre. What's up, yes, Andre? Yes, I'm Andre. You are our host, uh, Dr. Andre, as of oh, a couple Dr. of weeks Andre. ago. Yeah, Dr. Andre. <laughs> uh, I'm a graduate from Stanford where I studied robotics and AI, and, and now I'm working at one of these Silicon Valley AI startups. So as usual, we're going to, before talking about the news, uh, do a quick response to some listener comments. Thanks to everyone who comments or corrects us or just gives us general feedback. You can email us at contact at lastweekin.ai or comment on YouTube or Substack or give us a review on our podcasts. So we have a couple of them. We had an email from Nico who had some pretty good feedback uh, on us focusing more of the discussion on areas where we have personal expertise, you know, not getting into too much of a weeds on, let's say, legal stuff or stuff like medicine, where we are kind of, you know, doing a lot of speculation. And I do think that's, that's pretty good feedback. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, always helpful to, uh, to get that kind of thought, you know, some of this is obviously speculation, and it's hard to know where to draw the line sometimes. Um, I think in this particular instance, we were talking about, uh, in part, talking about uh, consulting work and the extent to which consultants understand AI, which in this particular case, I will say, I actually do have a fair bit of experience with this. I've run a like training program for some very senior consultants at like some pretty top-level firms. And I, it, my comments were sort of like informed by that experience, but I, I definitely get uh, this perspective, and I think it's something for sure with like legal things and and you know medical stuff at the very least for us to flag like when we're definitely not like lawyers or doctors or things like that that uh, you know we can we can highlight maybe more clearly. Yeah, and it's a good thing to keep in mind for listeners. You know, we are giving our takes, but yeah, we might be giving our own takes. You know, this is not this is not legal advice. Yes. Um, and we had one more uh, feedback from Darius, who had some nice things to say. Uh, a lot of people have mentioned in response to our questions that they do like some of our commentary in addition to summaries, which is great to hear. And there was a question as well here. Uh, so Darius asked, what's the trend in AI-related content? E.g., are we 2x 2022 in terms of number of papers, articles, etc.? Surely it's growing exponentially. And yes, uh, actually, AI content, let's say, for instance, number of papers has been growing exponentially for a while, for like at least a decade. And it's kind of crazy nowadays with conferences. Uh, <laughs> they are, it's a real problem in AI now, just the number of submissions you get. You literally need to have reviewers for thousands of papers that are getting submitted. And let's just say the process is uh, something that a lot of us academics find to be pretty flawed. You know, a lot of reviews are low quality and it's really a slightly random process. And yeah, it's, it's, there's been growing pains in this crazy exponential trend we've seen for like a decade. 
Yeah, and I guess far more people uh, much more new to the field than who have a lot of experience in it too. So I guess when, when it comes to review, you know, you'll have fewer people who can actually provide that kind of thoughtful input, I assume, at this point. Yeah, perhaps. Uh, more people, I think, are being more informed. I have been um, pretty, you know, positive on the AI coverage in the media, where more and more reporters mm. that are more knowledgeable and come from a place of, you know, having understood the stuff. But, you know, now we have all these influencers and, you know, yeah, a lot of commentary that maybe isn't as informed. And I, I will mention, if you're curious about trends in AI-related content, you can check out the AI index reports from Stanford. We've covered them a couple of times, and they give a very nice high-level view uh, that is not you know, technically difficult to understand, but they cover a whole bunch of trends that are happening for things like, you know, let's say, uh, different laws that are introduced, how many laws are being introduced uh, in, in Congress, there's been a big jump, and, and things like that, how many deals, all of that. Yeah, it's becoming like really hard to ignore the space for sure. And uh, anyway, we've got so many stories even this week that just hit that like nail right on the head. So uh... Exactly. And yes, yeah, so again, thank you for that uh, feedback and your questions. And now we're going to jump into the news coverage, starting with tools and apps. We have these AI humans are letting gamers modify their voices in real time. And this is about Spanish AI firm VoiceMad. This is about Spanish AI firm VoiceMod, which has released 20 AI humans that allow gamers to modify their voices in real time in video games. And these are trained from professional human voice actors, and you can download it and use it as a virtual microphone app for uh, Apple, uh, Mac, or Windows PC. Yeah, I think one of the really big shifts here is the real-time nature of this too, right? Like we've had for a long time kind of voice synthesis, voice cloning that's been not real-time. Um, but when you think about like the range of applications being able to do this in real-time, both from a beneficial application standpoint like this, right? You can essentially do impressions uh, or it can do impressions for you. But also from a malicious use standpoint, like now you can get into like having fun with fraud and having an actual conversation instead of using pre-recorded um, kind of uh, snippets. So this is a, an interesting shift. Obviously, the the company here is looking at the watermarking solution to help identify voices that are generated using these sorts of systems. But ultimately, the reality is that we're here and this technology exists. So some actors are going to be good and, and they'll use the watermarks and, you know, some won't be. And it's going to be a little bit a uh, little bit murkier going forward to know who you're talking to on the phone. For sure. Uh, VoiceMod has raised $23 million in funding. And uh, yeah, I think... It is a cool little application. I remember I had over COVID a little D and D campaign we were doing online, and I was the dungeon master. And I, you know, I'm not a great actor. I gotta admit, <laughs> so I did play around with some of these uh, voice kind of modifiers to try and do some of the non-playable characters. Um, so you know, I think hopefully we'll see a lot of fun applications of this as well. Uh, next up, we have new Clippy app gives us a taste of AI in Windows 11. And if you're over the age of, I want to say, 
what, 27, 28 or something like that. Maybe you know Clippy. How old are you, Andre? Maybe this is... I'm I'm a 30 years old and yeah, okay. I know Clippy. I think maybe 25 is a threshold. Uh, oh, yeah? But yeah, it, okay. it's been a while since Clippy has been around, I guess. Oh, God bless Clippy. Okay, so if you remember it, right, it's this thing where you open Word and there's this little icon of like a paperclip and it's an animated character with eyes and he's there to help you and blah, blah, blah. He was never really helpful, but he was this like lovable kind of Microsoft character. And it turns out that there's a company called Firecube Studios that's making a kind of AI-powered, GP, chat GPT-powered uh, version of Clippy. And it's not like, I was trying to figure this out. It wasn't super clear if this was officially endorsed, like an officially endorsed Clippy. Surely they figured out the copyright somehow, but it is being made by Firecube Studios and looks like it's essentially going to be this aid, this assistant that lives uh, kind of on your on your Windows um, kind of OS. And so you, at any time you can pull it up and it's kind of like the Windows Copilot, though that integration is a little bit more tightly integrated with Windows. So kind of this lovable character back in your on your screen, so to speak. And you do have to enter your chat GPT API key, though, to make it work. So that's an interesting kind of like uh, kind of issue, because obviously you're going to have to pay for your use of the chat GPT API that's powering this whole thing. But um, yeah, I don't know. What, what did you think, Andre? Yeah, it's it's fun. You know, there is Clippy, uh, the character on there. I don't get the impression this is actually sanctioned by Microsoft, but you can download it on the Microsoft Store. As far as I can tell, it's kind of just an interface to access ChatGPT, so you can do all the things you could do with ChatGPT about it, uh, or what you can do with ChatGPT with it. And uh, it kind of is pretty similar to Windows Copilot, with which we've discussed, and that actually is more... Uh, deeply connected to Windows itself. I don't know that this can modify many Windows settings, but if you'd like to have ChatGPT just directly on your Windows screen, this could be one thing to try out. Apparently, they're also introducing other characters too. If you remember Microsoft Bob, I don't know. I don't know if anybody else played with the other characters besides Clippy, but there was Microsoft Bob. I think it was Microsoft Bob and a couple other characters. So anyway. If you're if you're really waiting for those, they will be up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a fun little thing for sure. And just uh, one more story we'll cover pretty quickly. We have ChatGPT on iOS now comes with Bing built in, and that's pretty much it. The app, if you're a paid user, allows you to access information for Microsoft's Bing search engine. I think we've chatted a little bit about how ChatGPT is adding this web search feature, which uh, allows it to access information that's not in, a tr in its training data set. And the free version of ChatGPT can only provide information up to the year 2021, versus if you do have this paid feature, you can ask it about present uh, day stuff. Yeah, I think this is all part of OpenAI just trying to figure out where to draw the line in terms of what they charge for, what they don't charge for in, in like, classic software as a service, right? Like we have this kind of well-established intuition about what, you know, what threshold you start charging people, you know, above a certain user user number, above a certain um, a certain capability, you know, certain set of capabilities or something. And it seems like here, like one one way that they're drawing the line is, yeah, like the freshness of the training data, which is kind of a cool uh, cool feature. And moving on to applications and business, we start with junk websites filled with AI-generated text 
are pulling in money from programmatic ads. And this is like, oh God, a preview of the future shitty internet, apparently, brought to you by AI. So about 140 major brands are apparently paying for ads right now that end up on these like very sketchy AI-written sites, uh, often without their knowledge, just because you know you, a lot of ad placement is done automatically through algorithms that decide where to serve your ads. And so sometimes they end up on, on these, these websites that are known as made for advertising sites. So basically you can imagine you know, back in the, the day, the way this worked was you'd have like click farms or, or just like kind of um, very low quality uh, labor that you would use to just pump out a crap ton of clickbaity kind of websites with, with spammy content. And now it turns out that AI is really good at doing clickbaity websites with spammy content. And so that's uh, that's something that's being used to gobble up a bunch of this this ad revenue that uh, otherwise would be used to place ads in, I guess, better, more constructive places. Yeah, the numbers here are pretty crazy. Uh, NewsGuard has apparently identified around 25 new AI-generated sites each week with uh, 217 found in 13 languages since April. Uh, I guess it's not too surprising. It's part of this ongoing, you know, arms race between people trying to trick SEO and, you know, game the system. And, you know, presumably now these advertisers need to be able to detect, uh, detect AI-generated websites and avoid this sort of thing. So, you know, not too surprising that this would be a new tool that people use. And, yeah, as you said, uh, a bit of a preview on the way the internet will just be filled with noise even more than it is now. Yeah, apparently, and it may already, like, a big chunk apparently already is. Like, so I was just looking at the the article, you mentioned really interesting numbers. Another one I found interesting was 21% of ad impressions in the sample that was looked at here went to these kinds of sites. That's $13 billion globally wasted on these sites each year. So like, it's already like a drag on this entire industry, which anyway, I, I would not have expected this really. Yeah, me too. Next story, AI startups buck funding winter growth share in 2023. And so yes, VC investments in AI startups have increased from 10% in 2022 to 15% in the first five months of 2023. I'm assuming that means 10% of all VC funding. This is uh, at a time where VC investments in general have slowed down a lot with the state of the economy and, and just general sort of uh, lessons learned from the past decade. Uh, but AI investments on the rise, as you might imagine, and we'll be covering a lot of those stories coming up in the lightning round. So yeah, it's uh, as you might imagine and might have been expected, this is actually happening. Yeah, and I don't know if we cover this explicitly in the lightning round, I'm trying to remember, but I, the latest Y Combinator batch was like dozens and dozens of AI startups. And, and I think like an interesting question, you, know, you hear people say, oh, well, it's, you know, this is just a, uh, a fad, like it, you know, it'll pass like the crypto bubble or whatever, we're, we're in an AI bubble. Um, and what's clearly prompted this is stuff like ChatGPT, but I think one of the things that that tells us is uh, 
given the rate of acceleration capabilities, it's quite possible that this is not in fact a bubble, that uh, that this funding might might actually be really well allocated. And that's at least my, my bias looking at this. Um, also interesting that the macro climate hasn't actually like knocked the wind out of investors' sales completely, especially when it comes to AI. You know, who knows what these numbers would look like if we weren't staring a recession in the face. So this is like, this is pretty wild stuff. Dollars are expensive now with interest rates and people are choosing to spend them in big ways on these tech startups. Yeah, and uh, probably, you know, there's going to be a bit of a bubble perhaps in mm-hmm. seed investing, I would imagine. There's just a huge sort of gold rush of new companies and a lot of them will not uh, work out. But as we'll cover soon, there are a lot of these very big deals going on that are with established companies. And I do think I agree that, you know, this this, this is real and it's around here to stay. I, I think you're actually sorry. That, that's a really good point. Like, what is a bubble and what isn't? I, this one feels like a like a hybrid like spaghetti monster of bubble, not bubble. Where you have you know th- there are some obviously low quality companies, or at least like you know if you're in the space, you understand the tech. You're just like, all right, th- this is like there's no moat here, there's no competitive advantage. Like this is going to fizzle out. But then there are others where it's like, whoa, like how have you not raised at an even bigger valuation? Sometimes, not always. But it just—it seems like there's a—it's—it's it's this like living contradiction that we're seeing right now in that market, and it almost seems, though I have no better way of thinking about it, but it almost seems like if we like if we had a way to segment those two and just look at like especially hardware AI hardware companies, you know, often seem a little bit more legit these days uh, relative to some of the application domain stuff. Like I feel like that's one axis where they resolve pretty yeah you know, pretty neatly. It's not to say there aren't great application companies, just you know maybe a little bit more imbalance type there. I don't know. What do you think, Andre? Yeah, I think that's right. There are various ways to dig more into the data. And I think the AI index partially does this. So you can break down by stage of investing, seed versus A versus B, etc. So yeah, we'll see a mix here of maybe some investments turn out to be not very wise as people just rush in to get in on this. But at the same time, I do feel there's a lot of understanding uh, from, let's say, people investing on what is really you know a major player versus someone who is has a lot of competition and might not work out yeah you could burn like a lot of naive dollars i feel like at this stage just throwing money at this space yeah and moving on to our lightning round we have the tsa will use facial recognition in over 400 airports. And so it's looking to the TSA, that is the Transportation Security Administration is looking to expand its program to around 430 US airports over the next couple of years. Um, They claim that their program has shown 97% effectiveness across all demographics. And they explicitly say here, including those with dark skin. And so, you know, it's interesting, like 97% effectiveness Depending on how these kind of this analysis is actually used in the back end, that could either be really good or like kind of bad because it's like you know if, if what happens when there's a misfire matters a lot here. You know, are we talking about just pulling somebody aside? Are we talking about like I don't know other things that could be more serious? Having a an extra one in thirty chance of uh, of getting pulled aside or, or getting delayed is you know not a trivial thing. Um, but anyway, they're they're looking at um, a bunch of separate pilots looking at travelers' images and comparing them to a government database, 
Um, but they say only trusted travelers are currently included. So anyway, a bunch of privacy concerns, as you could imagine, uh, coming out of this stuff. Yeah. And I will say, I think it's probably true that it's very good. Facial recognition is very mature at this point. So I can see why it would make sense uh, to do this. I've already experienced um, with like passport checks when you do international travel. It's actually quite convenient to not have to go through a person. So personally, I like this idea, but of course, you can ask whether we want this to be possible. Next story, OpenAI chooses London for its first corporate office outside the US. Not much else to say on this. Uh, OpenAI is expanding. You could argue that maybe this has implications for you know London and the UK being friendly to AI in terms of regulation. Maybe they don't want to be in the EU. They want to be in the not EU, UK now. Uh, but yeah, that's that's pretty much all we know uh, from this. Yeah, it, it definitely does align with uh, some of the stuff we've seen out of OpenAI, their increased focus on government lobbying. My guess is this is probably going to be about, you know, in part at least lobbying the UK government because of this you know, big UK AI summit that's happening at the end of the year. And, uh, and also because the EU is right next door, right? You've got this, this bastion of AI regulation there. So probably having an office there isn't going to hurt. Um, mm, yep. And next, we have Unity shares rise 12% after company announces AI Marketplace. So the shares go up 12%. The Marketplace is for AI software, uh, essentially a kind of platform play. And the idea is to allow people to choose from different pieces of AI software that generate game dialogue or textures or graphics uh, from independent companies. And, and this is actually a trend that, I don't know, I find kind of exciting. Like it's this idea of having... Uh, essentially an assistant to help people find kind of more narrow AI tools that can solve for really kind of specific and important tasks. And the platform play seems really cool. We, we've seen, I think last week, we saw OpenAI kind of move in that direction, looking to set up an AI marketplace as well. This one kind of more game focused, obviously, but um, interesting sign of maybe things to come. Like, I wonder if we see more of a move in this direction as aggregators start to like become more and more important and serving up more narrow systems and helping with search. Yeah, for those who don't know, possibly Unity is one of the major game engines that is used in, in a lot of the industry. It's really quite dominant. And their asset store already is a big deal. They have you know a lot of assets, some music and, and visuals and packages of code. So yeah, it, it is a good idea and the shares uh, do reflect that. Okay, and now we're going to do a lightning, lightning round <laughs> with a lot of stories about uh, fundings. So first, we have a story that Inflection lands $1.3 billion investment to build more personal AI. We just talked about uh, Inflection recently in terms of them having one of these language model plays. So... I mean, wow. And with, with this, they're planning to build an uh, AI supercomputer with 22,000 NVIDIA H1000 GPUs, which is kind of insane. Yeah, uh, seeing the H100 kind of become this like dominant workhorse of the system, like switching the switch over from A100s, which we used to see in these kinds of announcements, to H100s. Anyway, kind of a little cool detail here, but damn, that's a big raise. Mm-hmm. 
Next, we have Runway, a startup building generative AI for content creators, raises $141 million. We've talked about Runway before. It's mainly for video editing, and they are, seem to be pretty dominant in the space. Uh, so, uh, yeah, now they have a bunch more money. They're valued at $1.5 billion. Yeah, and I think NVIDIA also invested in them earlier on. So I'm not sure if that's part of this round or if that happened earlier, but cool. <laughs> and after that, we have Typeface, which is building generative AI for brands. They raised $100 million at a $1 billion valuation. So this is more of a focus on enterprise use cases. And uh, it consists of a content hub, AI-powered training and personalization, and stuff like that. Another enterprise play. I, I feel like it's it's now at the point where it's like ah, they raise a hundred million. Uh, uh, is that is that is that really news? Is a hundred million dollars really <laughs> news? <laughs> That's just the world. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and and speaking of hardware, next we have Celestial AI, which also raised a hundred million for their uh, light-based interconnects, mm. and this is for data transmission. One of the very important things for doing training with large clusters of compute. So I guess it makes sense that this would be useful, and also this could cut costs in data centers by four to five percent. Yeah, the interconnect bandwidth is like this really key uh, dimension, let's say, to GPUs or to, to compute generally, because like when you have to put a bunch of GPUs together, they got to communicate with each other to train these very large models. And this optics-based thing, this light-based thing, is I've seen this as a trend. Like There are a bunch of companies working on similar stuff, including I think Fathom Radiant, which is uh, kind of, yeah, anyway. Another trend. And another trend, and still a couple more funding stories. Almost done, though. We have Gleamer, which provides AI software for radiologists, raises $29.5 million. This is a French company. This is their Series B funding. And their flagship software is Boneview, which directs radiologists to areas of a scan that may indicate anomalies. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited just broadly about the medical applications of this. So cool to see fundraises there. Definitely. Yeah. And, and cool to see things maturing to a point where doctors are using these sorts of tools. Yeah. And in France too. Bravo, Riga. <laughs> Last up, we have Parrot, an AI-powered transcription platform that turns speech to text, raises 11 million Series A. Uh, so yeah, there you go. Uh, they unveiled a feature that summarizes depositions in seconds for legal experts. And they, I guess, are focusing on this. They aim to streamline the deposition process. Yep. <laughs> another, another fundraise. What can I say? Looks good. Looks good. Congrats, Parrot. So next up, we're moving on to straight up acquisitions with Databricks Strikes $1.3 billion deal for generative AI startup Mosaic ML. Mosaic ML is a large language model platform, and they specialize in low-cost language models and working with proprietary data. It's kind of maybe more of an enterprise play, helping companies work with like their own internal data, hooking it up to large language models. And so, um, yeah, kind of uh, interesting move here by Databricks. Yeah, Mosaic ML is still pretty young. It has 62 employees and has raised 64 million. So this seems like a pretty proactive move on Databricks' part. And Databricks is a pretty major company in data storage and management. 
And then next we have Meituan buys founders months old OpenAI for China for $234 million. This I think is actually a really interesting story. Um, so basically this is a super young startup. It was started by a guru and kind of AI guru in China and was bought, it was acquired for basically the same amount of money that they had in the bank plus liabilities. So essentially like they were acquiring it kind of at no cost, buying up just the team. And it's sort of seen as a bit of a sputtering out maybe of this, um, what was once thought to be OpenAI for China. Uh, so uh, this, this company is called Light Years Beyond. Um, it has a, a Chinese name as well, uh, but uh, which I'm not going to try to pronounce because I'll butcher it. But yeah, I, I think a really interesting kind of example of maybe AI hype in China, not not quite translating, at least in this particular instance, they were backed um, by Sequoia China back in the day too. Yeah. And it, it kind of shows OpenAI for China. OpenAI is hard to replicate. You need <laughs> yeah, a, lot of, a lot of infrastructure. So uh, you're going to probably have... Uh, you know, we've already covered a few companies that are trying to get into that space. A lot of them are not going to be able to uh, catch up, I think. Yeah. And next we have, as the generative AI craze rages on, Ramp acquires customer support startup Cohere.io. And so this is essentially, so so um, uh, just to be clear, this is not Cohere. Uh, oh, what is their website? Anyway, th there's a there's a big multi-billion dollar startup, large language model startup called Cohere. This is not that startup. Um, they are this is a startup that's specialized in customer support. So Cohere raised 1.3 million in seed funding. They had over 200 customers at the time of the acquisition, and um, they basically extract customer support data and help to automatically resolve tickets. They claim they can hit 60% of tickets automatically resolved. Yeah, another very practical and useful uh, business use case here. And then we have NVIDIA acquired AI startup that shrinks machine learning models. And I think this is another really interesting one because you've got here, so there's this company called Determined AI, and, and essentially what they do is they take big models and then they shrink them uh, using techniques we've discussed on the, on the podcast in the past, like model distillation, that sort of thing. And um, this is, I think, really significant because NVIDIA is looking to own more and more of the AI stack. And increasingly, it's become clear that that has to include owning the model shrinkage part of the stack. Um, model shrinkage is super, super important because sometimes you want to put a model on an edge device, for example, that can't fit a fully scaled model. Or you find that, hey, like 99% of the expense in running a model doesn't come from training it, it comes from inference, it comes from deploying it. And it's much cheaper to run a smaller version of a big model than the full big model. And so people often do this to get cost savings. So strategically, I think this is another example of NVIDIA trying to like flesh out their, their ownership of the stack here. Yeah, I wonder how many acquisitions are happening at NVIDIA. I imagine this is one among many they're going to be doing this year. And moving on to projects and open source, we only have one story this week in here. And this is a kind of a blog post unraveling GPU inference costs for fine-tuned open source models versus 
closed platforms. This is from mlops.community. It is written by the co-founder of Infraless, which is building a serverless infra for AI company. So I do take this with a bit of a grain of salt, but it's still pretty interesting. So this does some of that uh, analysis, as it says, and you can basically infer that you, if you host your own models with AWS cloud computing, you can cut costs from using an API like ChatGPT by quite a bit. So according to this analysis, as you scale initially with a small number of users, you can get away with a third of the cost. And as you go up to 20,000 users, it goes down to about a fourth of the cost if you do your own infrastructure versus if you're using OpenAI. So... Yeah, and this is another case where the release of a lot of these open source models that are commercially licensed is really going to change up a lot of the game, I think, for companies. It will, and it's also, I think, highlights the the different use cases. Like, it is true that not everyone needs to run, you know, GPT-4, GPT-3.5, whatever in the, in the background. Like, yeah, sure, you can often use, like, open source models, but the value that you're getting, like, OpenAI isn't tripling the cost on top of open source models for no reason. They're like offering you all kinds of support. They're doing a bunch of security and safety screenings and essentially allowing you to like outsource liability as well. Like if a model goes wrong, you know, you can like complain to OpenAI, you can get help resolving it. The models are kept up to date, that sort of thing. So it's, you know, you're definitely getting value for that. I, I don't know that I find it so surprising that there's like a 3X to 4X lift it's also not super surprising that as you scale more, the economics start to favor hosting your own model too. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. This kind of makes sense to me. It doesn't seem like necessarily much of a ripoff. I think the the framing of the article seemed to be that like, oh, wow, look at the discrepancy. Um, there certainly is one and, and you'd expect there to be one. But um, I guess, I, I don't know. I didn't find it so, so shocking. No, I don't think it's very shocking. And I think now with... You know, open source models getting quite good. None of them quite as good as ChatGPT necessarily or GPT-4, but for a lot of applications, you don't need that top-of-line yeah. performance. So I think a lot of money is going to go to AWS <laughs> uh, <laughs> for for serving these things instead of OpenAI. Again, AWS wins by selling shovels. Yeah. Uh, and now moving on to research and advancements, we have researchers from LinkedIn and UC Berkeley propose a new method to detect AI-generated profile photos. And so this is a collaboration between those researchers, UC Berkeley and LinkedIn, and they say that they can accurately identify uh, generated, I was going to say fake, I guess fake, yeah, AI-generated profile pictures 99.6% of the time and they say that the, so this is uh, c- contrasted with misidentifying genuine pictures as fake only 1% of the time. And so that's pretty good. I mean, it, it's in line certainly with, with what we've seen in other um, kind of general facial recognition things. I'd, I'd be really curious what the, like, what the specifics of the data set were behind this. Like, you know, obviously, depending on the method you use to generate these images, they'll have different artifacts embedded in them. So I'd be curious about how generalizable this strategy proves, like kind of beyond the, um, uh, the data set that they use here. But, uh, but it is you know, a good sign for the moment that uh, there are techniques that can allow you to detect these things. 
Yeah, uh, we covered, I believe, last week the announcement that we are releasing this as a feature on the platform, but this time we are covering the paper itself. Uh, it's exposing GAN-generated profile photos from compact embeddings. And yeah, it's neat to see LinkedIn working with Berkeley and releasing this not just as a feature on their website, but also as this uh, paper that actually you know, pr produces an interesting new method for this quite important problem. Next story, we have China's Baidu claims its Ernie bot beats ChatGPT on key tests as AI race heats up. That's most of what we have here. So there's this AI model Ernie 3.5 from Baidu. Baidu is a giant company in China that is a bit similar to Google. And this says that Ernie surpassed ChatGPT and GPT-4 in Chinese language tests, but was behind GPT-4 in English. And yeah, Baidu is has been in AI for a long time. They have you know quite a bit of research. They do autonomous driving, so it's not surprising to see them continuing to invest in this language model direction. Yeah, a couple things I thought were interesting about this, like one of which was just this is Baidu pumping out impressive performance, at least it seems to be, um, despite all of the semiconductor export control restrictions. So you know, we know that Chinese tech companies and, and research labs have gotten really good, for example, at like combining together Frankenstein monster clusters that consist of different kinds of GPUs, which is a problem that just doesn't come up in the West where you can you know have an entire server farm of all a 100 top of the line NVIDIA GPUs, and you don't need to worry about compatibility or whatever. So like this is going to be part of presumably what's going on in the back end here. And they're still able to pump out some pretty impressive results. Um, I thought it was interesting that they call it Ernie 3.5, by the way, just because it in implicitly invites you to compare this to GPT 3.5 rather than GPT 4, and it kind of invites a more favorable comparison. I thought that was kind of a, a funny and, and a good marketing move on their on their part. Yeah, um, I agree. I think it's it's hard not to think that that's their intention here. So smart, I think. And uh, one other thing I found interesting in the article, uh, Baidu said one defining feature of this latest model is their ability to access plugins which are apps that can be accessed via ErnieBot. So for instance, Baidu's search feature has been integrated with ErnieBot via plugin. So this also is part of a trend, you know, OpenAI now has plugins and apparently Ernie does too. Yeah, and these are big improvements too, like relative to, I think they came out with Ernie 3.0 like a couple months ago, like two months, maybe three months ago. And like we're already here, it kind of climbing the ladder toward GPT level, sorry, GPT four level capability ish, and that I think is kind of the last thing I would highlight is just like how messed up it is to try to even assess like the relative capabilities of Chinese models versus English models. It's already hard enough to tell like which one is better between like Falcon and like you know Llama or whatever else. Like we find that hard enough when these models are trained on very similar like English language corpuses. But here we have to do this weird apples to oranges comparison where we're comparing like GPT-4 in English to Ernie in Chinese. And so another challenge just in figuring out like who is doing what in AI and how well they're doing it. Yep. All right, moving on to our lightning round, we have Lean Dojo theorem proving with retrieval augmented language models. Um, theorem proving is this really kind of 
well, often considered a, a really important marker of progress in AI uh, because it does require you know, coherent thought, let's say, across a large number of steps generally. And there have been some really big steps in this direction um, in the past. And so now we have this model called Lean Dojo that ex- extracts proofs uh, in Lean into data sets for training machine learning models. And it allows the trained model to prove theorems by interacting with Lean's proof environment. And so Lean is the um, company, I guess, behind this. Uh, Lean uh, is uh, a theorem prover. I don't know exactly what the company behind it is, but yeah, it's a tool that can do uh, theorem proving and they, I guess, generate the data set from it and use it as a way to do this uh, retrieval augment and prover thing. Okay, cool. Well, congrats to uh, to the, the team here. I guess, I mean, it's, it's an important area to work on. I mean, I, I don't understand it nearly as well as I should, but it uh, seems like a, a nice advance. Yeah. And uh, I found it interesting. This is a collaboration across five organizations. It's called Tech, NVIDIA, MIT. So uh, yeah, large, large team. And they also release the code and models, which is cool. Next story, self-improving robots embracing autonomy in robot learning. This is from Stanford. And this is talking about reinforcement learning that, um, you know, one of its real limitations is that you kind of train for a single thing at a time and you need a lot of uh, human involvement for robot learning specifically. So here they introduce this metal algorithm that can train our agents autonomously with hum- minimal human interventions by learning you know, some fancy policy. <laughs> uh, there's a cool idea here where they learn uh, policy to first do the task, and then they also learn how to undo the task. So you can reset the environment uh, and can continuously learn by yourself. Uh, so yeah, you know, as a robotics guy, I found this kind of interesting. Yeah, it also seems to give them like a, an extra lever, like they can reset, it seems, the initial starting state to kind of reset further back and make the task a little bit harder too. That seemed to be one of the, the themes of the strategy. So you know, presumably, this allows you to train the model on maybe easier versions of the problem at first, and as it gets better, kind of ramp up the the difficulty level, almost like a, I seem like almost like a, a learning rate schedule type thing, except in in RL kind of real world reset stuff. And speaking of self-improving robots, next we have a new research from DeepMind titled "RoboCat: A Self-Improving Robotic Agent." So it's not really the same idea, but uh, similar. So RoboCat can pick up a new task with relatively few demonstrations. This is not quite RL. It's more learning from a demonstration. And it's called RoboCat because it is built on the Guapo model that was released last year. I think it was called oh, Gato, Guapo. I think. Gato, Gato, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't speak Spanish. but It's a, it's a Guapo Gato. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, here they uh, use this whole idea of using um, some set of demonstrations to seed the robot, uh, training it, and then practicing and generating more data, that sort of thing. 
Yeah, my, my understanding from looking at this too is that the, one of the big things that they're seeing is this thing called positive transfer. So, you know, there's this idea, you know, back when Gato was first trained, what in 2021, I want to say 2022, mm-hmm. like it, it, it uh, anyway, decades ago in AI time, um, <laughs> there was this issue where they trained it to master like 600 or 450 tasks or something. And the question was like, okay, if we now train it to do a new task, how much of its knowledge from other tasks is going to transfer over? And will that be better than training a purpose-built specialized model on that new task? And what they found then was actually, no, it, it kind of it's it's worse to kind of add another capability to this existing model. And so you have negative transfer. Here they seem to be seeing positive transfer on this RoboCat thing that is based on the Gato model. And so that kind of seems like a pretty interesting and and significant shift. Um, like they saw it, it looks like a, a doubling of the success rate on kind of the, the next task after they had, um, oh, sorry, no, that actually, that's slightly the wrong stat. But anyway, an improvement thanks to this uh, stacking of capabilities, helping it to learn new capabilities as well. Um, what, what was your thought on that, uh, Andre, the yeah. positive transfer? Yeah, I think it's really cool. And I think broadly, it's part of a trend in robotics research of trying to get to general models that can be adapted to different tasks and you know go beyond let's say single task training like reinforcement learning usually does and yeah i think robotics has been really moving pretty fast and getting a lot of benefits from language models a bit surprisingly or the architecture of language models so it's it's an exciting time in the research world of robotics yeah, yeah, the the like ability of language models to understand the world seems to actually be starting to pay dividends and like they can lean on the language models understanding the world to plan their next action and kind of orient themselves. Kind of counterintuitive. I'm like I, I wouldn't have expected this like in what 2019 or whatever before scaling started in earnest. Yeah, and there's also all these text vision models and and various things that are coming together and DeepMind has been doing a lot of that work and it's been quite cool. And next up, we have NVIDIA H100 GPUs set standard for generative AI in debut MLPerf benchmark. Okay, so the one stat, if there was one thing that I was blown away by in this thing, it's the scary fast performance of these H100, these Hopper 100 GPUs. Again, these are the top of the line GPUs that NVIDIA has. And they tried using this cluster of like 3,500 Hopper 100 GPUs to train GPT-3. And so GPT-3, like back in the day, took months to train. No one knows exactly how many months right now, but they did it in 11 minutes with this cluster, which like, what the fuck? Um, so yeah, compute uh, is is pretty... And I, I assume, they didn't specify, but I assume they mean the full like 176 parameter GPT-3 with a data set comparably large, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's not too clear. It's the MLPerf uh, test or benchmark. So there's more details we can dive into. There's actually a bunch of tasks that are being tested. And they also go into, for instance, ResNet, a vision model. And you can do that in less than a minute, like 20 seconds, which is insane (laughs) with these giant clusters of thousands of GPUs, which, by the way, co-developed by Inflection AI. Uh, Mm -hmm. So yeah, NVIDIA is getting uh, 
going to get a lot of business with inflection, I guess. Yeah, especially lately. They've got about a $1.3 billion of business more they're going to be getting based on that fundraise too. So Exactly. And on to policy and safety, starting with from ChatGPT to executive orders inside the White House's urgent push to regulate AI. So the White House, as we've been covering, has been doing a lot of meetings in the SF area and elsewhere with a lot of the industry leaders and some of the academic leaders as well. And now they're unveiling or will be unveiling the summer some executive orders and other policy actions that will maximize the impact of existing regulations and establish guardrails and also, I guess, push forward the ability of companies and government to develop AI. So yeah, it's just another story to cover this general um, trend. The White House apparently are building a blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights, which is set to be released this year, supposedly. So moving very fast and you know, it's kind of a good indicator that I think with respect to this new technology, it's been around for a while, but now really there is a bit of a fire lit and it appears, you know, I think the government might be doing a good job here. Yeah. I mean, this is definitely one of those moments where, and the article goes into this, but like people are realizing, holy crap, the standard process for government, the standard legislative and regulatory process is way too slow to deal with these things. That's why we're seeing it dealt with through the executive branch with executive orders that you know, don't have the same kind of legislative uh, muscle behind them. And, and it's sometimes debated the extent to which they can be enforced, but it's certainly a much faster way to go. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the Biden administration seems to be barreling head in. You know, the story opens with Joe Biden checking out ChatGPT and, and what it can do and being blown away by it. You know, whether whether that's apocryphal or not, uh, the point is ChatGPT really coming up again as a big kind of locus of concern, big focal point, drawing people's attention to the space. Another thing that was interesting in the story is they highlight the role of the uh, White House Chief of Staff, uh, Jeff Zients, who apparently has been really spearheading all this, really emphasizing the need for speed. Um, and uh, and he had this quote, he's saying, speed is really important here. If one acts too slowly, we're going to be behind by the time we take action, and our action is going to be leapfrogged by the technology. And so this is something that's come up just over and over again. People saying like, hey, you can do all the Senate hearings you want, you can do all this stuff, but like... Ultimately, some people have timelines for like reaching human level AI that could be as short as two years. Some say it might be 10, and it's considered long timelines if you're beyond 2030. So in that context, it's like, you know, not everyone agrees, obviously, but it's just like if you have a, a chunk of people who think that, if you hit anywhere close to that mark in the coming decade, like everything changes. So the legislative environment just needs to, to hurry up and catch up really, really quickly um, last thing I'll mention is they do include a really good preview of a couple things to come. So Kamala Harris is going to be holding a summit on AI. It's more, it's more uh, consumer protection focused. So it's not going to be kind of the big picture stuff that maybe is going to come up at the uh, UK AI safety summit later, but um, that's kind of cool. And then uh, there are a bunch of leading AI companies, including Google, Microsoft, and OpenAI that are expected to announce privacy and safety commitments that are crafted, and I thought this was interesting, in coordination with the White House in uh, in the next little bit. And uh, anyway, a bunch of other things around like the G7 coordinating with this stuff. So uh, kind of a, a cool uh, cool moment for AI regulation for sure. Yeah, 
quick self-correction. <laughs> I misread the notes a little bit, so they are not developing uh, the Blueprint yeah, for an AI Bill of Rights. That was already released already. last year. Yeah, <laughs> but it's they're developing or building on it. Uh, so it'll be kind of a start or indicate the approach of the uh, government to AI policy. And I was just going to say, actually, that you know it's good to see them moving fast. But on the other hand, GPT-3 has been around for a while. And as, you know, I guess public knowledge or public awareness of this stuff really exploded with ChatGPT. But for a while in 2022, if you actually use GPT-3, you could see that it could do all this stuff. And that yes. you could predict its massive impacts, I think, even a while back. So... In a way, it's a little bit behind. It feels like we should have had more of an effort uh, already for a couple of years, but it's good to see that we are really trying to move fast now. I, I completely agree with you. And like, just kind of as a brief like biographical note, just because it feels so relevant here, like in 2020, when GPT-3 came out, um, I, I actually, like that, that was the moment for me where I left my startup and I went into AI safety full time for exactly the reason that you highlighted. It's like pretty obvious where the scaling thing goes and GPT-3 could already do all this stuff. What I learned in the process of like just schlepping and trying to like talk to politicians as much as I could to understand how they were thinking about it is that they really are just people who got elected. Like politicians are literally just like your next door neighbor ran for office and they got elected and they know what you would expect your next door neighbor to know. And so when you talk to them about the GPT-3 thing back then, the reaction was almost like, oh, this is very powerful, but it's like this very academic, very niche thing, rather than something that's going to like explode all over the world and just become this thing. So it's this weird disc. Like I completely agree with you. It, like they really ought to have, it was crystal clear to anybody who saw the story back then. And yet emotionally, it just, I don't know, until chat GPT, people didn't see their kids using it, you know, they, they didn't use it themselves. And I think that that bar was was shifted. But it's just like this really challenging problem of like, you know, who, who do we elect? Like, they've got to be people like us. And people like us, unless they happen to specialize in this area, you know, they're, they're just not going to know. And they're probably not going to take things as seriously as as they perhaps should have back then. Yeah, I think it's also a thing where, for regular people, it's one thing to hear about it. You really have to play around with ChatGPT and GPT-3 yeah. to really have it sink in. And that wasn't easy or even you know doable for most people Good point. until ChatGPT. So probably it would have exploded if there was this open playground. But I think it was still sort of limited access for until ChatGPT really. Next story we have in the lightning round. First, U.S. considering new restrictions on AI chip exports to China, according to Wall Street Journal. Uh, so we've already covered quite a bit how there are already restrictions on really top-of-the-line GPUs, which has been um, kind of has been making a big impact. And Nvidia had to release this uh, other chip as an alternative. And I don't think there's many details here on what are the particular restrictions, but yeah, another really aggressive move here by the US. Yeah, and I, I think it actually it kind of makes sense. So, so it seems like what's happening is, you know, the US came in and said like, okay, so 
as a reminder, the, the letters and the numbers, right? The A100 GPU was the workhorse top of the line GPU that Nvidia made that everybody was using until like I don't know, 20 minutes ago when the H100 came out, which is this like ter- terrifyingly powerful thing that we just talked about a little bit earlier in the podcast. And then, so they were told, NVIDIA was told, hey, you can't just sell this shit to China. This is way too powerful. You're kind of arming the enemy here. So NVIDIA goes, no problem. We're just going to make the H800 and the A800. So instead of A100 and H800, now switch to the ones to the eights. And that might have something to do with the fact that eight is the lucky number in China, but that's just Jeremy speculating. So don't hold me to that. But anyway, we now have these new uh, new GPUs that are purpose made for China, and they have specifically low interconnect. So basically, that that property that we talked about as well earlier in the podcast. Ah, see, everything builds on on itself. So now you have this like lower interconnect. These these GPUs can't talk to each other as fast. Essentially, they're still really powerful, but they have that limitation that prevents you from building really big foundation models. Now, what's happening finally is the Department of Commerce seems to be saying, "Hey, you can't sell even the H800 or the A." 800 chips without a special US export license. And how hard is it going to be to get that license? That's a separate question for, I believe, the Commerce Department, but like the regulatory authority there. And that might actually end up being a fairly easy process anyway. But certainly it means that, hey, NVIDIA, like you can't just like uh, make a little, a couple tweaks to your, to your GPUs and keep selling them. Like the bar is higher than that. And, and I think that's the kind of big shift that we're seeing, really trying to cu- close off all those. Uh, the, those bases that Chinese companies might be exploiting right now. Yeah, uh, still like when the initial export restrictions were announced, I was pretty taken aback by how much of a you know strong and and pretty impactful move it was by the U.S. So it's it seems they're really committed to this uh, course of action. Yeah, it, I think the calculation that's happening right now is, you know, we talk about malicious use all the time on the podcast. And like you think about those capabilities in the hands of an enemy, especially, you know, China with its track record of using AI on like the Uyghur Muslim populations on, you know, just general kind of population control, stuff like that, and then militarizing it. It's not that the US doesn't do that as well, but in, in the US's self-interest it certainly is to like prevent uh, a kind of an adversary state to to access this like raw material that can power these applications. Uh, next up, another heartwarming story: seventeen fatalities, seven hundred and thirty six crashes. The shocking toll of Tesla's autopilot. And this is a Waypo article, um, basically looking at this investigation that revealed that there have been you know seven hundred thirty six crashes. Uh, involving Tesla's autopilot system. This is just in the US. And since 2019, the important detail was that this is more than what had previously been reported. And there's a bunch of controversy over this as to whether we should be, the word happy can't be used here, but like whether we should actually be more okay or less okay with this. Like, is this more than what you get with human driving? Is it less? Elon Musk is claiming that actually you know, this is still a better track record than human drivers. And then some commenters in the article are saying like, well, um, in order to know that for sure, we'd have to have access to proprietary data that Tesla has on its kind of car, self-driving car system. So a um, bit of an open question, it seems. Yeah, it's it's hard to say. You would really need to know like where are people driving and how much they're driving. So this doesn't tell us too much. It does play into 
things we've discussed, I think, a couple of months ago, maybe even last year, of investigations by the National Highway uh, Authority about, in particular, Tesla's autopilot was not good at responding to emergency vehicles or, or perceiving emergency vehicles. So there were a bunch of crashes involving that. So I think, at the very least, the fact that autopilot has some specific flaws or had some specific flaws uh, is is pretty questionable. And yeah, I think, you know, if nothing else, there should be an investigation to see if there is some flaw here or not. Famously, Tesla has removed the radar sensors, which they claim that you can do just cameras by themselves, but cameras have some weaknesses, so maybe that will actually increase the amount of incidents. Yeah, it's... An ongoing situation, I guess you could say. And did they backtrack on that? Because I remember um, at first it sounded like Elon Musk had this commitment to like, I only want these cars to work the same way human drivers do. And so they're only going to have visual inputs and not like uh, LiDAR or, or whatever else. I, I thought they might have backtracked on that position like in the last couple months, but maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I'm not too sure. I do know last year they moved to that position. They might have rolled back now and, and are installing radars again in vehicles. I'm not too sure, but still, I mean, uh, even with radar, they're famously not using LiDAR, which is another safety analogy. And yeah, we've also discussed, I think, how self-reported usage of Teslas by drivers there were a lot more necessary takeovers when the car was doing something wrong, like right. orders of magnitude more than way more crews. So yeah, I mean, uh, if you are a Tesla driver and you're using autopilot or full self-driving, please be careful. You do need to supervise it pretty closely. Andre Karpathy is no longer there looking over the AI's shoulder to make sure everything is okay. He's at OpenAI, remember that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Up next, we have European companies claim the EU's AI Act could, quote, jeopardize technological sovereignty. And so here we have a bunch of uh, executives, basically, from European companies. They include Renault, Heineken, Airbus, and Siemens. And they've come out and criticized the AI Act, basically saying, like, look, you're, you're over-regulating the space, you're hampering us, and so on. This is in the wake of an event that happened a couple of couple of weeks back, I want to say, or maybe it was last week. But um, uh, anyway, this was when the European Parliament greenlit a draft of the AI Act. Uh, that you know, this was after two years of developing its rules, and uh, there's still a bunch of steps left. So it still needs to be deliberated in various bodies in the EU government. Um, but there is concern now, and this open letter reflects that concern, that essentially the EU is suppressing the opportunity that uh, AI provides to Europe, as they put it, to, quote, rejoin the technological avant-garde, which I thought was so interesting. It's this like European uh, identity of these companies. They, they've internalized the reality that they are way, way behind when it comes to, uh, to tech. Like You just don't see the same tech success stories as you might in the US and China in Europe. And they're seeing AI as this like potential way they could get back in, but the regulatory environment now coming down pretty hard and specifically singling out now foundation models. And the act apparently says that regardless of their intended application, foundation models are going to have to register their product with the EU and undergo risk assessments and meet transparency requirements and disclose whether they were trained with copyrighted data, that sort of thing. 
Yeah, we discussed the uh, quite a lot. I think we just discussed it last week too, and now as it is being finalized and you know approaching some major kind of steps, it's not too surprising that this is happening. Also, we discussed how the foundation model clauses have been added pretty recently. And there's been some controversy about some of the compliance costs that they would uh, need to do, uh, for instance, with open source technology. So there's going to be a lot of joking and discussing. Uh, and yeah, you know, I can say as an academic, uh, to my knowledge or from my experience, Europe, the EU doesn't publish, there are not that many publications in major conferences. It's usually primarily the US and China. And, you know, there are, of course, really great universities that do a lot of great work. But I think uh, similar to how they are behind commercially and companies, just the whole expertise is not there as much as it is in the US and China. It's tough because eh? this is really a market where the the benefits compound. Like like AI researchers will leave to go places where they think the best AI researchers are, and so the winners, the, the rich get richer in in that sense. So it's kind of hard for an ecosystem to you know to emerge from scratch, especially when it's being regulated. But I, I think even absent these regulations, um, I think Europe would face an uphill battle relative to you know the US and, and UK. But um, mm. Very true. And yeah, this is our week's story on the AI act. We'll see. Maybe it's going to be <laughs> it's a, it's a, a story theme. each week. Tune yeah. in next, <laughs> next week. week. Yeah. Uh, we should have like a chat GPT section and an AI That's right. section. Yeah. <laughs> and on to our last section, synthetic media and art. First, we have Adobe stock creators aren't happy with Firefly, the company's commercially safe gen AI tool. So there's some backlash from contributors to Adobe stock, Adobe's stock image service, that people claiming that their images were used to train the AI model without their consent. Uh, you could argue that that is a use of their intellectual property to create content that competes with them in the marketplace. And Firefly has been popular, apparently. There's been a flood of AI-generated images uh, with people trying to make money, I suppose, from them. So yeah, kind of a pretty understandable uh problem and adobe plans to develop a compensation model for stock contributors and will provide more details firefly is still in beta yeah this kind of raises that i was gonna say age-old question i mean this question is like maybe 10 years old now but i remember you know in the early days of facebook i uploaded my profile pictures and all that jazz um and I was like, yeah, it's fine. You know, what are they going to, what are they going to do with it? Are they going to hire somebody to like, look at my photos? And then, you know, within two years, uh, we had AlexNet and then we had like all kinds of computer vision, auto tagging things that were popping up. And so I never, when I first uploaded my images, I had no idea that this technology would arise, that these new uses for old data would appear. And now you know, that was the discriminative era where you, know, you would basically have these models that could pass commentary on an image and tag it and things like that. Um, but now we're in the generative era where this is happening yet again. So it's like, okay, now how do you feel about your images being used to train a generative model? And it's like, again, you know, not clear what you actually consented to back in the day when you contributed. And there's probably a lot of like 
I don't know. I'm guessing there's a lot of legal uh, legal groundwork that's going to have to be laid to figure out you know, where that boundary is. Yeah, for sure. And uh, this, of course, is reminiscent of a lot of a backlash that happened over Midjourney and similar text-to-image models with right. artists uh, really being pretty pretty angry a lot of the times about this AI and the fact that it scraped web for a whole bunch of images, including copyrighted images. And so this question of intellectual property, compensation for use of data, consent, still still a question that hasn't been really resolved. And I haven't seen a great kind of a, a answer to it from Adobe or anywhere else. Like, you know, in some cases you can ask your uh, data not to be used in training. I think going forward, hopefully there will be an opt-in model where by default you can say no, but you can opt in for some compensation. I feel this is probably needed, <laughs> but we don't have it yet. Yeah. And, you know, as if we needed more complicated shit to worry about, but like start to imagine as is already happening with with text, like GPT-4 was trained on a bunch of blog posts that I wrote, and now it's generating text that will presumably partly be used to train GPT-5 if they can't fully extract all the places where GPT-4 generated that text. And so it's like, okay, my text was used for GPT-4. Maybe I opt out of, of allowing GPT-5 to use my, my text, but it's still going to use the text from GPT-4, which was trained on my text originally, and the snake eats its own tail. And so anyway, um, this, this but for, for images too, I guess, is going to be eventually a concern. Yeah. And so if you're signing a contract or you know, user agreement <laughs> with a website, you might want to actually take a look and, and figure out this if your is, data... This is definitely legal advice. We know exactly <laughs> what the fuck we're on about right now. This is... <laughs> uh, exactly. Actually, um, speaking of which, um, there's a fancy legal word called indemnification that I'm now going to try to pronounce like three times without screwing it up because the next story is that Adobe... Uh, in uh, sorry, let me not screw that up. Adobe indemnity, Adobe indemnity clause designed to ease enterprise fears about AI generated art. Okay, this is actually really cool. And even though I can't pronounce the word, I, I've like had some experience writing legal documents with indemnity clauses. Basically, these are uh, essentially guarantees on behalf of one party that they will support another party in the event that legal proceedings arise. And so uh, essentially what Adobe is saying here is like, yo, uh, enterprise customers, you guys seem really shy about using Firefly, which is the image generation tool we just were talking about. And they're basically coming out and saying, look, Firefly was trained on Adobe's own data that, that we own. That's the, the image data that was controversial in the article we just discussed. And as a result, we feel so confident that you are not going to be held responsible legally for using that content, that we are going to uh, indemnify for you, uh, sorry, indemnify you, geez, uh, in the event that there's a, a third-party IP claim about Firefly generated output. So you go out, you use Firefly, you generate some, some shit, and then somebody sues you because maybe it looks too similar to their shit, or maybe they think that Firefly used their shit in its training data. Somehow they're pissed about your shit looking too much like their shit. And Adobe saying, hey, we're going to step in the middle of this and say, hey, we will support you in the legal proceedings. 
And so this is a pretty bold move, it seems. I mean, to my understanding, like this is some legal exposure that Adobe is offering to subject itself to for this. And they're claiming that they feel comfortable doing this because they trained Firefly on Adobe stock images, which they claim they have broad permission to use, uh, along with some openly licensed content and like public domain stuff. So they think that they're on solid legal ground. And this is, I mean, I think this is them really raising the stakes. At least that's my read of this. Yeah, this is really clever. So they at least will also pay any copyright claims. And there are many, many ways and places you can generate AI art now, right? But none of them have this guarantee for enterprise users that Adobe has. And Adobe, of course, being a large company, you you could sort of probably trust them on this because they've been in the game for a long time and you know this is kind of staking their reputation so yeah i think it's a really impressive move by adobe and i could see them really becoming a huge player in the you know enterprise you know actually commercial use of ai generated art because it's actually safe and you know, we know that at some points laws will be passed around this. And <laughs> yeah. as a business, like we, we talked about how Nature, the uh, scientific journal, said that you cannot use AI generated stuff, partially because the legal regulations aren't clear. So, uh, yeah, this is a pretty big move and probably a pretty smart move. But again, we don't know too much about business or regulation, so maybe we're wrong. Tanigo's excellent point uh, on the last podcast or whatever. Yes, none of this is legal advice, um, but uh, but it, it yeah, uh, we're not similar. saying you should invest in Adobe, but we know a guy. We know a guy if you want to invest in Adobe. You know, yeah, uh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Alrighty, well, with that, we're done with this week's Last Week in AI podcast. Thank you for listening. Once again, you could go to lastweekin.ai for the text newsletter. You can email us at contact at lastweekin.ai for any feedback or corrections or thoughts. Uh, you can share this with your friends if you want. You can review us on Apple Podcasts if you'd like. But primarily, we would just be happy if you keep tuning in. <laughs>